KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Drive down any highway in southeastern Pennsylvania around Halloween, and you're likely to see billboards for Pennhurst Asylum with terrifying images. It's hailed as one of the best haunted attractions in the country. But decades ago, Pennhurst was an actual institution for people with disabilities. A lot of real, horrifying things happened there, and not in an entertaining way. When I'm giving a history tour on campus, the first question I will ask my tour group is, would you put a haunted house on Auschwitz? Neglect, isolation, abuse. Pennhurst is one of the worst examples of how poorly society has treated people with disabilities. It's also where a lot of kids grew up, making friends, playing games. Some people spent their whole lives there. And the events that led to its closure were key moments in the fight for disability rights, laying the groundwork for advocacy and improvements over the following decades. And yet, today? Without the haunted house, this site would not exist. There's some parts of what we do that people don't like, and that's fine, so long as we can find common ground on the idea that it is worthwhile to save the history, it is worthwhile to tell the story. This is The Johncast, a podcast about interesting and unexpected stories from Philadelphia. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa, and this week, we'll hear the real story of Pennhurst, good and bad, past and present. We'll find out how people today are trying to acknowledge and preserve that history, and why there are differing opinions on how to do that. What have we learned from the past? And what can we do better for people who are living with disabilities now? Penhurst is about an hour outside of Philadelphia. Coming from the city, you'd head out on the Schuylkill Expressway going west, through Conshohocken, King of Prussia, past Valley Forge and Phoenixville. You'll drive through the small, quaint town of Royersford into Spring City. You turn on Brown Road, and it feels like you're driving straight into a forest. There are signs for Penhurst, but even so, it's hard to be certain you're going the right way. You pass a veteran's center, and eventually the road turns to gravel. Soon, a series of large, decaying brick buildings come into view. Windows are boarded up or just broken and left open. The walls are overgrown with vines. It feels extremely isolated, empty, and quiet. A silence that feels pensive, like there are stories waiting in the gentle wind. This is where I met Jim Werner, the operations manager at Penhurst. There was construction going on, so you could hear the distant sounds of other life. But as far as I could see, it was just the two of us. So let's, can we start with kind of an in, like background sure. intro of like sure. where we are and how, like what, what is this place, what was this place when it started? Of course, of course. Well, where we are right now um, is the former site of the uh, Penhurst State School and Hospital. Um, the Penhurst State School and Hospital opened in 1908 and closed in 1986. In the 75-plus uh, years that it was in operation, uh, thousands of special needs children were dropped off, dumped, or allocated to this facility by the state, um, as well through private channels as well. What Penhurst was, um, from its inception, was a place where 
these children could be stored for all intents and purposes. That was the intentions of the, uh, the people who came up with this very bad idea. Penhurst was never actually an asylum. The people living there didn't have a mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. No padded rooms or straitjackets. It was an institution where people of all ages, but often children, who had cognitive and developmental disabilities were sent to live. In 1908, people really didn't understand mental disabilities. They didn't think that people who had disabilities could ever function in society. So their solution was to separate those people, to put them away for life. From the early years of its inception until uh, the 1940s when eugenics fell out of favor with uh, modern science, things like sterilization, uh, forced separation of uh, males and females, um, as well as the idea that by having them here, they weren't out corrupting the gene pool of the general population. Um, right. All of these just completely flawed ideas, wrong ideas. And it was an institution for what were then called feeble-minded and epileptic people to literally and figuratively move them off the grid. Dr. Dennis Downey is an emeritus professor of history at Millersville University. He's also the parent of a child with disabilities. He's done a ton of research on Penhurst. He's written several articles, given talks, and he recently edited a book called Penhurst and the Struggle for Disability Rights. And they were people who had a, a cognitive disability that, uh, as the thinking of the day was, could not be improved upon. And it could also be inherited, passed on to the next generation. The idea was to uh, gradually weed society of this population. And they were often incarcerated uh, for life. They were literally called inmates. So the motivations behind Penhurst were problematic from the beginning. But there wasn't really any other choice for people with disabilities. There weren't any community resources or ways that their families could support them. And the thought was that this would be a good place for them to live, where they'd be taken care of. It didn't take long for that thought to be proven wrong. Now, you have to excuse the dust. It is a 100-year-old building. <laughs> sure. Um, and our tours actually start this Saturday. We have a, uh, Jim walked me inside the Mayflower Building, where Penhurst LLC, the company that now owns the property, and the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance are working on building a museum. Yeah. Some more really cool uh, history stuff over here that we have. Um, even the things in the cases here, these are toys that were from when the property was open that we were able to find in our travels. And um, a lot of them, our archivalists yeah. have actually found some of these things in pictures of when the building was open. And wow. it sounds like a confirmed this was here. Um, as early as 1912, the superintendent wrote the state and said, we can't, there's too many people here, help. Yeah. And that was a repeated cry. How many people the were there kind of at maximum? There has been, there has been thousands and thousands of residents over the year, um, upwards of three to 4,000 at any given time. Wow. Um, when we think about the, the population of the area around us, uh, Penhurst itself at max capacity was bigger than a lot of the local towns around us. Yeah. More population. Through all the years combined, 10,600 people lived at Penhurst. At its peak in the 50s, it held 3,500 residents at once. There was no privacy. Jim described how in earlier years, 
residents would sleep in packed rooms with around 50 beds lined up next to each other. Pennhurst was funded by the state, and they were not given the budget or the staff to take care of this many people. The ratio of staff to resident could have been as higher than 50 to 1. Basic things like hygiene, sanitation, feeding, dressing, let alone the ideas of good, solid stimulus between people become almost insurmountable tasks. Some staff really did try their best, but they were overworked, overwhelmed. Others made the problem worse. And I'll be honest, the staff fall to me into two very, very specific categories. You had staff here that should have been nominated for sainthood, hmm. without question. And then you had staff here that would work for the very minuscule pay that the state was offering and had no qualms about what they were doing. They didn't care. I'm sure there was a few that fell somewhere in between, but we find our, our stories of staff going out of their own pocket to purchase hygienic items for the residents. And then we have stories of staff who would abuse and neglect on purpose because there was no oversight. No one was really checking up on Penhurst. They even had their own hospital, so they never had any reason for residents to leave. The pay for workers was very low. And to be frank, people with disabilities were often seen as not entirely human, less than or other. So some staff didn't feel bad about treating them poorly. It gave license to the worst features of human nature in terms of treatment and care. One of the, the critical things was the role of uh, medical experimentation and medical research at institutions. Where else to find a large number of people who couldn't, uh, were not required to give their informed consent before they were experimented on? And it wasn't until 1973 that Pennsylvania put a ban on, put a moratorium on further medical experimentation. So that's, that's one form of abuse. The other was a developing culture of uh, what we can think of as physical, psychological, and even sexual violence. With a simple Google search today, you can find plenty of stories of the abuse that happened at Pennhurst. But when it was operating, you wouldn't have seen that from the outside, at least not for a while. I like when you take a walk on the catwalks here out to the dietary tea. I can see how it would have been like really beautiful and it's, oh, yeah. and it's prime and on, on a nice yeah. sunny day. Yeah. Uh, manicured lawns, flowers, paint on the outside, pointed, you know, and yeah. the buildings themselves are gorgeous. The buildings themselves right. are decorative, which is crazy because the initial construction. Grand buildings and arches are connected by elevated walkways across large fields. You can still see the remnants of a playground and imagine kids playing on the swings and slide. This was where they grew up, where they formed friendships and memories. And that's what families would see when they came to visit, if they came to visit. They were only allowed on certain parts of the campus, the parts that the staff made sure to have clean and presentable. They were never permitted back into the day rooms or dormitories to see the conditions. They were always kept out front. There are stories and we talk about this in the book. I have uh, residents, inmates being given new clothing to put on, 
to go out and greet their family members. And then once the family leaves and they're brought back, they're switched back into their old clothing. A lot of people hear the stories and ask, why would you send your kids to this place? Wouldn't you eventually learn about the conditions and pull them out? But even if families did find out what was going on behind these walls, it wasn't that easy. There's several answers to it. One is that parents had very little choice. Dr. Allison Carey is a sociologist and a professor at Shippensburg University. She specializes in health and disability with a particular focus on families. She's family to someone with a disability herself. I'm a sibling. My sister has a disability. My mom was an activist. I got into, you know, doing work with the disability community early in life. Allison has studied Penhurst and the families of the people who lived there closely. And she says there just weren't many options back then. There were not community services at the time. There wasn't even a lot of information out there. So it's not like you could go to your library or open up a web page and look at the diagnosis. So they only knew what doctors were telling them. They were told that good parents institutionalized their children, that this was a way for them to get the care and treatment that they needed and that these kids could not thrive in the community. And when they institutionalized their child, the child became a ward of the state. So parents actually usually lost their legal rights as parents. So parents could not just then walk in and take their child back out. If you look at the Pennsylvania State Archives, you'll find letters to the governor, letters to the superintendents, basically begging for their children to get appropriate services, begging to bring their child back home. You see those letters after parents have passed away, siblings who want to bring their person back home. And sometimes it was allowed, but sometimes it was not. It was really up to the doctors and the superintendent of the institution to decide if somebody could thrive in the community or not. So it's not just the person with the intellectual disability who's losing their rights. The parents themselves are also losing their rights. A lot of families did fight hard to either improve conditions or get their kids out of Pennhurst. And eventually, people started paying attention. Not the staff or the state right away. First came the media. In 1968, reporter Bill Baldini convinced Pennhurst to let him in where families and other outsiders weren't supposed to go. And he went out there with a film crew, and he said, if you don't give me access, I'm going to film here anyways. And so they allowed him in for five days, and they filmed without restriction. And all of this was edited and broadcast on the evening news back in Philadelphia, and eventually was picked up by, I think, 95 affiliates across the country. And it was the first great expose, if you will. Baldini's documentary series, called Suffer the Little Children, aired in five parts on NBC10. It wasn't until Bill Baldini shot this place and put it into people's living rooms while they were trying to eat dinner hmm. and showed them what the real world is less than a half an hour from their homes. Less than an hour from their homes. This exists. This is between here and Dutch Wonderland. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was, it was one of those like, wow, this is real. And I believe that is what changed. And what changed wasn't that the state was suddenly like, oh, shucks, we better pick up our game. What changed was advocacy. Yeah. People saw that. 
And people said, absolutely not. Mm. We have to do something. People started filing court cases. Park, the Pennsylvania branch of a disability advocacy group called the ARC, sued the Commonwealth in 1971 over the right for all children to have access to public education. And Park won. There were a lot of cases around then that established important rights for people with disabilities. But the one that ultimately closed Pennhurst was Halderman v. Pennhurst State School, filed in 1974 by the mother of a resident who had been abused. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and took 10 years to be settled. But ultimately, the court ruled that Pennhurst had violated residents' constitutional rights, basically affirming that people with disabilities are protected as equal citizens under the 14th Amendment. The final agreement was approved in 1985, and Pennhurst State School and Hospital closed its doors in 1987. Over time, the importance of Pennhurst is that the court eventually decides that even though you're institutionalized, you still have constitutional rights to be protected. So Pennhurst really was ground zero in the recovery of rights that had been lost. But there was a lot more work to do. Now that Pennhurst was closed, where would its former residents go? And what happened to the property? How did it get to the dilapidated state it's in now? And how did it become the site of one of the biggest haunted attractions in Pennsylvania? That's all coming up after this. Welcome back to the Johncast. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. When Pennhurst closed its doors in 1987, it was a victory, but also a challenge. Not everyone wanted to see it close. Even parents, according to Allison Carey, the Shippensburg sociologist. Some of the parents who were suing the state for the terrible conditions in Pennhurst, they didn't actually want Pennhurst to close. They wanted Pennhurst to improve the conditions. They wanted more money channeled into Pennhurst. So some parents were really triumphant. Other parents were really upset because at that time there weren't community services. So some people went home and they were much happier there and families were happy about that decision. Other people went home to families who had made a choice to institutionalize and they did not want their family members back. Other people didn't go back to their families. Some residents went to other institutions. There are still three state centers operating in Pennsylvania today. We also saw the development of group homes, where people with disabilities can live together in a place that supports them in the community. Another option was family living where they could live with a family that's not their own, but that's willing to take them in and help them. There's a lot of evidence that shows that people do better and live longer in places where they can interact with society, with access to resources to help. The problem was, in 1987, those resources didn't really exist yet. We did have a difficult transition period of creating, starting to create some community services, and many parents did that themselves. This is a pattern that continues throughout history and into today. Like, it is difficult for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to find jobs. And we see parents today who open up coffee shops so that their kids can have a job and other kids that they've gone to school with can have a job. So parents are still doing this work. There are a lot of organizations now that are helping parents and people living with disabilities to advocate for their needs. 
Speaking for Ourselves is a self-advocacy group based here in Philadelphia. Debbie Robinson is the executive director. Is for folks to find their own voices, um, making your own decisions, you know, being in charge of your own life. Debbie is originally from New York. She moved to Philadelphia with her mother in the late 80s. I broke the mold by challenging the city of Philadelphia, you know, I started this whole thing, believe it or not. I challenged, I honestly did. Um, In what ways? (laughs) Well, uh, it's an interesting story. When I first came out, um, I had to get services. So mom, my mother and I went to Philadelphia County. And by that time, and that time they had people moving into slots. Basically, the city offered slots with agencies that provided services for people with disabilities. You'd be assigned a slot when one opened up, so you couldn't choose which agency you got. I challenged that. I said, well, why can't I interview, why can't people with disabilities interview their own agency? Oh, that's against the rules. That's in, where is it in the regs that says you couldn't interview your own? They couldn't find it in this big book, thousands of pages. They couldn't find it. So Debbie carved her own path by insisting on choosing her agency, challenging the rules. That was unheard of. That's like me having a relationship with somebody. (laughs) Oh, that's a whole different story. They didn't Mm. even want us to have a relationship with anybody. We talked earlier about eugenics and how in 1908, folks didn't want people with disabilities to have kids. Debbie says that was still a thing in a lot of ways in the workshops she went through when she was growing up, in the 60s, and even into the 80s. You know, like if I was holding your hand um, and things like that, oh, no, when we were doing that, they thought we were, um, uh, something was going on or something. Oh, they, they, they pulled us apart. People are getting married now with disabilities. People are having children. I had a couple of relationships already. Yes. That's great. Believe me, yes. I've done things you don't even want to know about. Speaking for Ourselves offers trainings to teach people with disabilities how to know what they need and ask for it. Like what to do at a doctor's appointment, or even things like consent, having agency over their own bodies. They also teach non-disabled people how to listen and work with the disabled community. One group Debbie really wants to focus on is parents. She gets help from an aide, Tina, who is a mother of two children with disabilities. While Tina has been helping Debbie, she's also learning a lot about how to help her kids. I have a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. I've been working with Debbie for about a year and a half now, two years. In the beginning, again, like she was saying, is we based our decisions with our kids based on what doctors say, you know, hey, you know, he got this, he got that. It's just label. They just label, you know. They limit them to do things that they are able to do. And you're able to make your own decisions. You're able to to do what you want. She told me, like, you know, Tina, you have to be an advocate for your child. You got to be their, you got to be their voice. Debbie taught me the term self-determination, the ability to determine your own life to choose things like where you live and who you live with. Even something as simple as when to eat dinner wasn't a choice in institutions. So that's what Speaking for Ourselves is advocating for, allowing choice and making sure that people with disabilities get a say in any laws or regulations that are about them. You know, you can't do anything without us being at the table. That's the key. 
Mm-hmm. He has to be at the table. You, you know, I visit institutions. I've seen things that I wish I have never seen. Mm-hmm. This is about choice. As I said, people didn't have choices. They didn't have cho- choices without, you kidding, what is a choice? Once all the residents and staff left Penhurst, the campus remained empty for decades. Our history expert, Dennis Downey, described it like this. I think it's fair to say this, that the state simply walked away once the last residents left. And you have this massive complex of buildings and grounds that are neglected for the next 30 years. There were several proposals of what to do with the land, but not much actually happened. A section was sold to become a home for veterans. That's the Veterans Center you still see today. Eventually, what was left was sold to a private company in 2008, the company that opened the Penhurst Asylum haunted attraction two years later. Jim Werner, the Penhurst operations manager, says the whole haunted house thing was really about the setting. You come to this property and it's spooky. You have these monoliths standing in the woods kind of watching you and open windows everywhere and sounds and, and it's silent. And when you add these, these are perfect environments for a horror movie. To a lot of people, that's not a good enough reason. Many people voiced opposition, including members of the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, or the PMPA. Although today, the PMPA is working with Penhurst LLC, the company that owns the property and the haunted attraction, on preservation efforts. So to put it very simply, it's complicated. Nathan Stenberg is one of the newer board members of the PMPA. I come at this both as a disabled person and as a researcher. So I got involved with PMPA in 2018. Um, So before that time, PMPA and their relationship with the Penhurst LLC was, uh, well, it was sorted. Uh, As you can imagine, I came into the PMPA as a researcher doing my doctoral work at the University of Minnesota. And uh, when I started doing my ethnography work at the asylum and interviewing people that worked there, and I, I started realizing holy moly, most of these people identify as living with a disability. And I've never heard this before. That was a game changer for Nathan. Penhurst Asylum was, and still is, employing people living with disabilities in all kinds of roles, including as actors in the haunt. Now, that in itself is controversial. Everyone wants to create opportunities for people with disabilities, but to have them performing in an asylum-themed haunted house doesn't sit well with a lot of folks who feel it's perpetuating the stigma. After learning about this, Nathan took his research to another level. He has a background in performance, so he went in as an actor in The Haunted House. I had to. I mean, it was just one of those things as a researcher. I'm like, (laughs) well, I kind of have to bite the bullet on this. And it was one of the most terrifying. Like, I have never experienced more vitriol ableism. If you look at the way that the patrons most of whom identify as non-disabled, come into this space and then treat the disabled performers, we start to see how disability gets dehumanized, right? Because if we sanction it through our performance, why shouldn't we sanction in medicine, in law, in education, right? So on one hand, it was the most terrifying, just visceral experience I've ever had. And on the other hand, it was one of beauty and community. Because after I got done haunting, 
all the veteran hunters came up and were like, we want to hunt with you because you're killing it right now. We want to be with you, right? And that's the kind of community that they foster. They didn't have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. But they took it on themselves to really make sure that I felt welcomed in the space. With mixed feelings, Nathan encouraged the PMPA to take a second look at Pennhurst LLC and try to work together on preserving the buildings, artifacts, and history. To me, the issue of whether or not the haunted house is right or wrong is not that relevant anymore because it's already being done, right? That's not to disrespect any of the narratives of the people that died there, because believe me, my work is about telling the stories of those people. But the reality of it is, is the attraction's already there and it's not going anywhere. And the only thing that's keeping that museum up and keeping those, uh, the, the buildings up is the haunted attraction. That's one thing that Nathan on the PMPA side and Jim with Penhurst LLC agree on. I know some people don't like the haunted house, and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. I can agree that you have every right not to like the haunted house. It's fine. In all honesty, and I, I'll say this quite frankly, without the haunted house, this site would not exist. The haunted house is what has financed this property and allowed every single piece of improvement that we've had. Remember, there wasn't much in the way of government funding to preserve the buildings for most of these years. Although Penhurst LLC did receive a grant and a loan from the state in 2017 to preserve what can be salvaged and turn other parts of the property into a business complex. And that adds another layer to it. Dennis Downey, the history professor, doesn't like that the area is becoming so commercial. Part of the, the test for me is for all of the money that's made, none of it is going to the survivors of Penhurst, some of whom are still around and still dealing with those decades. Someone once described Penhurst as Dachau without the ovens. Would we do this at Dachau or Auschwitz? I don't think so. That comparison came up a few times, actually, with different people. When I'm giving a history tour on campus, the first question I will ask my tour group is, would you put a haunted house on Auschwitz? That last voice was Nathan from the PMPA again. He said that even as he works in close partnership with Penhurst LLC. For him, the preservation is what matters. We mentioned the museum that the PMPA and Penhurst LLC are building at Penhurst which will be separate from the haunted attraction. The PMPA also wants to create a national disability museum in Washington, D.C. It's about preserving the history in the name of doing better in the future. Today, we have group homes, but many of them are underfunded, and some still keep their residents pretty isolated from the outside community. We have resources, but they come with long waiting lists, lots of paperwork, and limiting regulations. As with so many things, we've come a long way and we still have a long way to go. The path forward for allies like sociologist Allison Carey and self-advocates like Debbie Robinson is to take our guidance from people who can speak from experience. As we move forward, I think it's really important to listen to the voices of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Many people still perceive people with disabilities as this vulnerable population that needs help. And they are a vulnerable population and they do often need help. 
but there's often kind of this charity or pity approach. And so one of the things that I had to work through in my own life and that I see my students really having to work through is moving from this kind of, I'm the non-disabled expert who's going to help people with disabilities to people with disabilities have rights. And as an ally, I need to work alongside people with disabilities. This advocacy needs to be a joint effort. You know, come join our effort. Come be part of the solution. One shoe can't fit everybody. So we all need to get our story out, need to hear how we need to fix this. What is the solution? We all got to come together to make this work. The Johncast is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcasts, and it's made in Philadelphia by Tom Rickert, Brian Seltzer, Myron Kaplan, Holly Stevens, Bibiana Correa, and me, Sabrina Boyd Circa. Penhurst's history is a deep story that we only had time to brush the surface of. So we're including a bunch of links for more info in our show notes, including Bill Baldini's documentary series and Dennis Downey's book. We'll also have a link to the Speaking for Ourselves website. They have a lot of great information and they host events where you can go support and see self-advocacy in action. Follow us on Twitter at The Johncast, where we'll post some pictures of what Penhurst looks like now. And don't forget to follow us on the free Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts for more stories like this. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.